press on our study of the Judges. As you know, we went back to Moses. We are now in the midst of looking at Joshua. Um, one person that I was reading through um, said, well, Joshua never did any judging, um, but it's obvious that he did intervene, and he was the military leader of deliverance for the nation of Israel. Um, while we may not look at him in the capacity of arbitrating um, some things in terms of what we think of as, as judgeship, we know that just isn't the case. Um, and so we're going to see that as well this evening. And so we want to take a little time to um, uh, just review a little bit of the book of Joshua. Um, and we want to look at two facets, uh, particularly um, in Joshua's judgeship, uh, where he was the leader of the people of, of God for the balance of his life. And that is something we see consistently among the judges. That when they are appointed by God, we see them serving for life. And then when their life expires, um, either the people lapse into idolatry uh, and going the way of the Canaanites, or um, God raises up another judge. That's what has to happen. And of course, as we shared, um, we find that uh, in this instance, God had prepared a replacement for Moses uh, following after his death, and that was Joshua, to enter the promised land. And that uh, this is a somewhat unique situation compared to the period of the Judges where we really don't find that. Even after Joshua, we don't find him or God setting aside an individual to do that. And some of the reasoning behind that, I believe, goes back to the whole idea of a theocracy that it should have, by the time of the end of Joshua's life, we should have had well-developed the ministry of the Levites, the ministry of the temple, the ministry of the, of the priests, um, and they should have administered the law uh, efficiently enough among Israel to keep them in their worship. And so they should have heard the law they should have seen in practice, they should have been practicing it, um, and then there should have been a localized leadership. But of course, we know that wasn't the case. That's not what happened. And we can begin to see why when we get to 1 Samuel, right? What was going on? Well, the priesthood itself was being uh, infected, if you will, by sinful men to the point that Eli's sons lost their lives because of their disregard for the things of God. And so because of the, of the collapse, really, of the Levitical priesthood, we find a need for these judges to raise up. And it's going to bother us sometimes when the judges seem to take on themselves for themselves some of the priestly acts um, along the way. But that's one of the reasons why, is because they are not just leading their country militarily um, in a political way that we might think of, but they are leading them spiritually. And remember, most of the time, Joshua is an exception uh, most of the time, they are trying to get Israel out of a condition of false worship. And so, obviously, the priesthood and the Levitical system has failed. Or the Levites within the system have failed. And, of course, um, this God means to correct down the road, because, and that's what Hebrews talks about, right? That there was no way that that system could work because it was fraught with weak men, who had to be replaced, who didn't do their job, and who failed. And uh, because of that, there had to be a high priest, capital H, capital P, that endured forever, um, and that was Jesus Christ. Uh, 
So we come to the book of to Joshua's life and ministry, and I don't want to assume too much. I don't want to assume that we know all of the events of his life. Um, and so I do want, we looked last week at, at his preparation. We looked at his um, assignment given to him by the Lord, of, at what I believe was one of his greatest acts of faith and trust and obedience of God. Uh, and that was to circumcise all of his men just right there nearby Jericho. And then, of course, the falling of the walls of Jericho. And, and then we kind of finished up by talking about the situation around Ai um, and his whole need to address sin, that that is part of the judge's role, is when there's sin in the camp, you've got to ferret it out and identify it. And if necessary, you're not only the identifier of it, you are the judge of it and the executioner. And so it's got to be dealt with. And we're going to see many of the judges dealing with that. Um, with that very issue. And remember, all of this goes back to guarding the people from idolatry, most of all. And you might say, well, Achan's sin was covetousness. Well, in Corinthians, we are told what? Covetousness is idolatry. It is making an idol out of something of value, of, uh, that you have put value upon. And, and so if you want this stuff more than you want a relationship with God... Uh, which was Achan's problem. He wanted that gold, that garment, more than he wanted to be right with God, to be obedient to the Lord. And so covetousness is idolatry. And so he does judge Israel um, in that sense. And so to say that he didn't serve as judge, I don't understand that very well. So we come now to a couple of things, particularly. Um, as we've talked about the judges, we know that they are just men. They are men of God. They have a, a vibrant uh, desire to serve him. Uh, we, we, again, with some exceptions always to that, um, but uh, they have a passion for him, generally speaking. Um, and there is some injustice usually that, that brings them to that role as judge and and. And really, I think for Joshua, um, his would be shared with Moses. He was a slave. He was, and you got to remember that, he grew up the first 30, 40 years of his life as a slave in Egypt. And so for him understanding that, uh, he understood that injustice. And so he was very well prepared that way. And so we come into, and we, we want to see their, that these guys do have faults. They, they, they mess up. Um, all of them do. Uh, some of them in very grand style, and some of them uh, very subtly. And in Joshua's case, we have this one instance of concern to us, and that is the interaction that he has with the Gibeonites. And this would be in chapter 9 of the book of Joshua, if you want to turn there. And they have had a very successful, um, now, second, the second attack on Ai, very successful um, everyone is shaking in their boots a little bit and uh, fearful. Remember, Jericho was afraid just that they wouldn't even go outside the walls. Um, they were that afraid, even though there was a completely incapacitated army out there that they could have slaughtered easily. Um, there was that kind of fear. Well, that fear needs to be, is going to be responded to in a couple of several different ways. Um, one of those ways is the Gibeonites, and they are an unusual bunch. 
Unless you think the Gibeonites are, you know, how we characterize the French, you know, I surrender. Um, that's really not, <laughs> sorry, that was from World War, you know, World War II and all that. But um, uh, unless we characterize them, remember the Bible describes them as a, one of the powerhouse cities of the southern Canaan that were known for their mighty men of valor. Um, they were respected and even feared by the surrounding city-states um, in their region. And so, but the Gibeonites aren't just mighty and powerful, but they recognize something. And they recognize that these people, it's not just because they're a mighty army and have great, you know, um, stratagem. It is because their God is fighting for them. And, I mean, they're crossing the sea and dry ground. They're crossing the river and dry ground. Walls fall down before them. Um, this is just huge, and we can't fight against a God. And so there's a level of wisdom in the Gibeonites, and, uh, and so they say, we can't do this. And, and you can't surrender to them because how, somehow all the Canaanites knew the directive from God. How would they figure that out? By watching what Joshua and the Israelites did. What did they do in Jericho? They obliterated it. Nothing, no one was saved except for Rahab and her family. They obliterated the city. Uh, they go into Ai and they, they are just, just killing everyone. There are no survivors. There's no one being taken captive. We don't want you as slaves. We're going to conquer you in the name of the Lord because of your sin. This is a judgment of God on the nations. And we're his instrument in this, at this point. And so they can recognize very quickly the writing on the wall. If these Israelites come down here, and, and by the way, Gibeon sits in a very key place to be able to travel north to south in the land of Israel. And so they're, they're a few miles north of Jerusalem in that valley, that you, the, the interior valley there that most of the travel in Israel goes up and down, either at the coast or through that valley. And so they kind of seal that valley up. And they're, they're, they, once Gibeon turns and it's taken, there's a full access to everything south. And so the Gibeonites realize what's going on. And hopefully you are familiar with the story a little bit. Instead of fighting Israel, instead of surrendering, because they know surrender just means you're going to get slaughtered as well, we have got to trick them into making a treaty with us. How do you do that? Well, they're, they've been instructed to kill everyone in Canaan that they encounter. All the Canaanites are supposed to be destroyed. And so we have to not be Canaanites. And that's what they did. They devised a way to represent themselves as from a distant land. And these guys are smart. I mean, they get all their raggedy clothes out. They get out moldy bread. And, and they take their, their uh, wine... <laughs> Um, what do they call them? The wine sacks. And, and they, they, they cut holes in them and then they tie them off. That's how you would repair them in the field while you're traveling is you just tie them. And so they would have little knots all over them where they had to tie them off to seal holes that, uh, that happened over a long trip. I mean, they had it all figured out, even to their story. They didn't recount anything of Jericho falling. They didn't recount anything of crossing the Jordan. They only talk about what happened to Egypt and what happened on the, 
other side of the Jordan River. That's all they rehearse of what the history they know. They say, surely you are the people of God. Make a treaty with us. We're not near you. We're way over there. We're not even close to your promised land. And, and uh, you might say, well, you know, Israel got deceived. But there's two indications of Joshua's failure here. Number one is Israel purposely asked a question. Look at what they asked in verse 7. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? And but they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Who are you and where do you come from? And then they give their long spiel there. And the wine skins, that's what they're called, wine skins, um, were that way and... and and Israel investigates, takes all of this in, and, and examines all the evidence, but they don't do one thing. Joshua fails to ask the Lord. Lord, reveal this, this matter to us. They don't go to the Lord. They don't even go to the priest. And what does the priest have on him? There's a breastplate, the, not the ephod, that's going to come later, Urim and the Thummim. And whenever you need to ask God a question, the priest has these, and God will use them to respond to your query. He doesn't do that. You don't find him doing any of that stuff. He fails. He examines it, and he trusts his own um, wisdom. He trusts his own observations and, and the word of these people, and it says he entered into peace with them. This isn't just an, a... a uh, Oh, we'll let you live here. This is a, a treaty, a binding agreement that we will um, be allies. We'll, we'll defend you, you'll defend us, and, and we'll be allies. And so Joshua does that. Verse 15, Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So they made an oath. And that oath is binding. And uh, this is a, uh, a rash oath. And we're going to see another rash oath later on in the book of Judges, uh, towards the latter half of the book of Judges. But this is a rash oath. And the Bible warns against us, do not enter into oaths lightly. Because God holds you to them whether or not you made it in wisdom or in foolishness. God holds you to it. It's going to happen to Jephthah the judge later on. It's going to happen to Saul. He made all the people swear an oath not to eat till they had slaughtered their enemy, till it made an end of their enemy. And that's when Jonathan ate. He didn't know that he had made everyone swear the oath. And that's why Jonathan comes under the curse of God because he broke an oath of the king made before God. And yes, it was a bad oath, and we can talk about all that, but fundamentally, it's an oath, and they matter, and all of them do. And so when we make an agreement and a covenant, when we sign a document, and whether that's a financial document like a mortgage or a student loan, um, or whether it's a marriage certificate, um, and anything in between that, God holds you to that. You've given your word. It makes you really want to sign, read carefully those licensing agreements, doesn't it? On all those programs on the computer. You know, you use Facebook, you have to sign this licensing agreement. Well, what are you signing away? 
um, scary sometimes when you read through those, what you're signing away in the area of privacy. But you're giving them the right to your pictures and to things like that. Um, and then it's, you're stuck with it because you signed it. You agreed. You made a covenant, an agreement with them. And so God, those matter to God. And so when you give your word, God is listening. And is this a bad decision? Yes, but it's a binding one. Just because you made a bad decision doesn't mean you can get out of it by just saying, oh, that was a mistake, I shouldn't have done that. I've had enough married couples come to me and say that it was just a mistake, we shouldn't have done that. It's like, but you did it. And therefore, it stands before God, period. You know, get over it. I mean, there's been a lot of bad decisions throughout the Old Testament and into the New, but they're binding. And that's why James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be done with it. Don't sit there and make oaths. Don't do that. And that's why in Corinthians, Paul says, don't be yoked to unbelievers. Don't get into these kinds of covenant agreements. Be very careful in that. And so, because God holds you to them. Keep your word. You say you're going to pay this, then pay that. If you say you're going to be this, husband and wife, you're going to be that. Um, if you're going to sign a, a contract for a, a job, then do the job. God's holding you to it. And here Joshua does this, but God, while he condemns them for the act because they did foolishness, holds them to the covenant. And this is a very important principle for the, for the rest of Scripture. Um, don't think that because, oh, I just blurted this out and I shouldn't have, or I just did this and now I regret it and I can just go and undo it. And just, you know, if I wish it undone, it's undone, shazam, and we go to court and all of a sudden it's, I'm out of it. Wrong. Um, that's why you won't see me recommending bankruptcy because it's a way for you to unkeep your word. Same as divorce. Same, you know, anytime you break those agreements, um, even, a, you know, uh, rental agreements, all those kind of things, don't break it. It's your word, and your word's got to be worth something to someone, somewhere. And it is before God. He matters. So now Joshua's stuck with the Gibeonites. Well, what happens? Because Gibeon sits so intricately important to the whole southern campaign in that valley, the news of the Gibeonites surrendering, and really they were, but what they are doing is they're submitting to the God of Israel. That's really what they're doing, is they are recognizing that he's all-powerful and I can't fight against him. The southern kings, including of Jerusalem, get together and say, oh, well, we got to take over Gibeon. If they won't defend themselves and you know, plug that valley for us, um, we need to take it and we need to plug that valley. We're going to destroy these Gibeonites because they um, are treacherous. They saw it as an act of treason against them, exposing them. And so up they come and they're going to surround Gibeon. Of course, Gibeon calls out to Joshua. Um, hey, we're in trouble. And, and it's interesting because the book of Joshua describes these southern kings as coming suddenly upon Gibeon. And so they gather together and they are down there at the walls of, of Gibeon 
in the valley there preparing for war. And the news goes out, wham, it goes right over to Joshua. And Joshua musters his army and marches all night. And interesting, Joshua uses the exact same verbiage that um, just as the southern army showed up on Gibeon's doorstep and surprised Gibeon, Joshua's army shows up and surprises the southern armies. And so now we have the stage set for this great battle, and um, Israel's weighing it out. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do with these Gibeonites? Do we kill them? We're supposed to kill all the Canaanites. Now we have conflicting things to do. Do we let them fall? Do we do, what do we do? We've, ma we've made a mistake. What do you do with a mistake? Well, you're stuck with it. It would be wrong to kill them because you made a treaty with them. And so they have put them into slavery and uh, they have to consign so many of their men to serve as wood carriers, water carriers for the temple, tabernacle at this point. But they still have to come to their defense, and they show up on that defense, and uh, it gives them a wonderful opportunity to open up the southern campaign. Because now you have some of those powerful cities of the south all represented right there in that valley. Instead of having to go one by one over them, now you've got them all sitting there in one place. You kind of got all your enemies gathered in one spot. Um, now, in modern warfare and historical warfare, the thing is always divide and conquer. In Joshua, it's completely the other way. It's conquer and divide. <laughs> we'll conquer you, then we'll split you up among the people, among the tribes. And so it's uh, kind of the opposite. So we get them all together in one valley. Great, let's go at it. It's going to be a huge battle. And, of course, Israel is just creaming them. And, but the sun's going down. The moon has shown up in the sky, and Joshua's... Praise the prayer and ask God to stop the sun and the moon. It wasn't just the sun that stood still, the moon did too. And that should tell you something. Um, the, this is a universal miracle that's going to get everyone's attention in the whole world that's looking at the sky. You know, I know the people on the other side of the planet are going, you know, we're still, why is it still nighttime? You know, we got an extra... 12 hours of sleep last night. Um, but the whole world would have known this was happening. And this is when God stops it. And so you might say, well, Joshua made the mistake, and so he should have a penalty for it. Well, the, this is the penalty. But yet you say God used the penalty, but it ended up being good for Israel. And by the way, Israel didn't kill half of them. It says more people died by hailstones of the enemy than were killed by the Israelites, right? And so they were trying to escape to the valley. And, uh, and by the way, if you think uh, people dying by hailstones is a rarity, um, there's actually an account of it happening, I believe, in the 1859 uh, in a battle that uh, an entire army was devastated by hail. And so God uses these natural forces and controls them all to the benefit of Israel. So what happens? Here, they made a mistake. Is God done with them? No. You're going to live with your mistake, number one. You can't undo it. You're caught in it. You are trapped in that treaty. Number two, um, I've still got work for you to do. 
you're going to have to live with your mistake, which means you're going to have to march all night and rescue these people that you were supposed to have killed yourself, and it would have made more sense, well, just, just let the enemy kill them. Um, that would have been, you know, too, and I always said, well, that's not our fault. You know, and that's God's solution is let all their southern enemies kill them, their fellow Canaanites, and we'll just stand back and watch. And, but that wasn't right either. To fulfill, really fulfill your obligation of the covenant, well, you had to go rescue them. But God uses that too. Look at how the, what perhaps one of the most powerful and most notable um, miracles um, next to Hezekiah's movement of the sky. Um, this is the most notable, I think. Uh, the crossing of the Red Sea is pretty potent, but it was regional. This is a universal miracle. The universe had to stop somehow. Uh, or if the earth was still spinning, the universe had to spin at the same rotation as the earth. Um, yeah, start thinking about that, how that happened. Because um, if, the, you know, if the earth stops spinning, don't you just get crushed to the ground? Because you don't have the... Anyway, I'll have to work on my physics here a little bit. Um, phenomenal thing. You guys say, this is a great expression of God and his power that he was going to kill the enemies and yet preserve Israel and the Gibeonites. And this is such a serious matter, this treaty, that even later on when Saul kills the Gibeonites, God condemns him for breaking the treaty. Don't you dare break that treaty. You're going to pay for it, Israel, and any king of Israel, any time in the future. This is a treaty as long as Israel exists. The Gibeonites have this place. Did my thing just go out? So we have um, this almost paradox. Well, we did wrong, but it worked out really well. And we have the greatest miracle of all. Um, maybe we should just fail a lot. No. Okay. We should be wise. We should have done our work. Who knows what God had in store if they hadn't made this foolish oath and covenant. But what we want to demonstrate is the responsiveness. Joshua and the people are genuinely sorry for their rash choice. But they are equally willing to take responsibility for it and live in it. And I see a lot of Christians making really poor decisions and then thinking somehow they don't have to live by them that somehow they should be excused. And I see pastors that divorce their wives and think that they shouldn't be removed from the pastorate. You made a commitment to her to be her husband. You break that, there's going to be horrible things. What characterize these people that allow God to continue blessing them is when they made the mistake, they took responsibility for it and they lived in it. They lived with the mistake. If it means I have to march all night and defend people that I wanted to kill, I'm going to do it. And if we die to defend them, we're going to do it. We're going to fulfill every obligation of that treaty, of its intent. And God blessed that. I'm going to live with the consequences of my poor decisions. 
And that's what's missing from so many Christian lives today. Um, and so it's not that God blesses these bad decisions. God blesses them for living in them, for accepting responsibility for them, saying this is who we're going to be. And from now on, the Gibeonites are going to be this people. And remember, what was the point of killing all the Canaanites? Certainly there was judgment on them, but one of the main reasons was so that Israel would not go after their gods. So my question is, which God did the Gibeonites serve? They never, ever are responsible that we can ever read of leading Israel to false worship. They are probably true converts to the one true and living God. And they didn't know how to make that happen. And so we think of Rahab as being the convert and the Gibeonites being those sneaky guys. Well, but they abandoned their God. They had no trust in him. They didn't believe in their God. And they recognized the God of Israel as all-powerful. And they did what they could and to make themselves with him and not against him. And so in their ignorance, they came and did that. But Joshua shouldn't have been ignorant, and he should have had full knowledge. And there could have been a wonderful opportunity there for a real in, infusion of the Gibeonites into Israel, like many Egyptians who said, I'm painting the, the blood on my doorposts and sill. And so we had a mixed multitude come out of Egypt, remember? And so this isn't a blanket God that just condemns everyone. Rahab has already shown evidence that God will deliver those who trust in him out of the Canaanites who will, who will turn away from their gods. And I am convinced that the Gibeonites had just come to Joshua and confessed and, and, and begged for mercy and surrendered. Um, God would have led them to make them part of Israel. Um, but in their ignorance, they did it the way they could. And um, it worked out for them, but they were really making a statement of conversion. And Joshua, um, again, took responsibility for a bad decision. God blessed that, um, that you kept your vow, and now I'm going to listen to you. Um, even when you ask for ridiculous things from me, like making the sun and the moon stand still. Wow. And there's never been a day like that before or after that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. And, uh, and we're going to see that commonplace among the judges. They're going to fail, but then when it comes to crunch time, they take after they've taken responsibility for their failure, God uses them in a very powerful way. Even Samson, with all of his failure, when he humbles himself before the Lord and he prays to God, God, um, give me the strength to honor you now in my death since I didn't do so good in my life, God does. And if you think the hare restored his strength, it was the Lord that restored his strength to kill more of those Philistines in his death than in his life. And so, um, but there's a, accepting a personal responsibility. And the same thing with the rash vow of Jephthah. He fulfills, accepts responsibility for that. And he says, well, I'm sad, but I'm going to do what's required of me in this sense, in this instance. So we find uh, that Joshua's failure is turned and and because they take responsibility accept it and live with it that they um, are blessed by God and then of course we go through the Joshua we find his conquest takes about seven years from what we can tell 
for most of the battles to be resolved. Um, and then the dividing of the land. And we want to jump towards the end of Joshua to really see Joshua's farewell. And uh, this comes in two uh, forms. One is a, a Joshua's address that's in chapter 23. And then there is an agreement they make in Shechem. Um, and that we want to talk about a little bit. But remember, we already uh, are going to see some of the uh, issues. We, we looked at the issues about the altar at Jordan um, last week, right? So that, that he was intervening there to correct that. So he's still acting as judge all the way up to the end. And so um, Joshua's going to call all Israel together, and he's going to share with them some very strong words. And they are words that are very familiar if you read Joshua chapter 1. <laughs> he's going to tell them exactly what God told him and what they said to him seven or eight years earlier. Uh, well, no, it'd be a lot later than that. Sorry, they've already divided. The, the battle itself, the, the wars, took about seven years from what we can tell. Yeah, but he is still going to serve the Lord. And chapter 23, verse 1 says, Joshua's old, advanced in age, calls for everyone. And what does he say? I'm old, advanced in age. Verse 3, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I've divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight so you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. <clears throat> Therefore, be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or the left. And lest you go among these nations, those who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them. But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. And he goes on and lists all things that would happen to their benefit if they would do that. And which kind of reflects back to after they had uh, uh, had some victories, they, they set up on two mountains and they rehearsed the covenant. I don't know how many are familiar with that event where they, half of the tribes stood on one mountain and half of the tribes stood on the other mountain. The leaders were in the middle and they rehearsed the covenant. And this tribe shouted the curses if they broke the covenant. This side shouted the blessings if they kept the covenant. And so they were making this, and by the way, in that valley, it's like that. I mean, you can hear um, in that valley. That the, and I can't even imagine hundreds of thousands of people on each side shouting out these blessings and the cursings. By the way, um, this is a little extra. The mountain where all the blessings are, you can see the whole country. The mountain that the curses were on, you can only see the mountain that the blessings were on. <laughs> you can't see hardly anything. And so... It was kind of purposefully from the mountaintop of the mountain of blessing, uh, you can see the whole region, all the way up to uh, what is it? Uh, what's that mountain to the north? Not Hebron, but uh, Horeb. What is that mountain up there north that's snow-capped? So you can see all the way from there, all the way south, Mediterranean. You can see a huge place. Probably Mount Pisgah is the only one that's got a better view. And so, huh? Hermon. Hermon. And so um, that's where the blessings are. So when they're shouting the blessings, they're seeing the promised land. 
when they're shouting the cursings, they're just seeing the valley. <laughs> they don't get, there's not much more of a view. Um, but there they are making that, that agreement. Well, now he's taking their, their words. You said this was our covenant. Now, if you keep it, here's the blessings. But if you break it, there's a curse involved. And so he says, I know I'm leaving. Um, but uh, in verse 14, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. <clears throat> so God has been faithful all of Joshua's life. And, and uh, the covenant is in place. It's intact. And so um, don't get caught. Don't get caught serving the other gods. Don't fail. And, of course, then they um, have an agreement. And uh, this is the very famous uh, line that we often think about in terms of Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, uh, but the people also make a very strong declaration. In verse 24, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone, set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. This is another witness. We had a witness at the Jordan, remember, last week. This shall be a witness for it, it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It therefore shall be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. And then Joshua let his people go, uh, disperse. All this time, um, they have made this claim. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. And uh, Joshua's 110 years old. They bury him. And then verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. What does that tell you? It persisted for another whole generation. The people that stood there and said, we will serve the Lord, that remembered all that happened, they served the Lord for a second generation um, that knew all the works that, uh, which had been done for Israel, they served the Lord. Um, the bones of Joseph are brought up. They're buried at Shechem. Um, we find Eleazar, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, also dies. They buries him uh, in, in a hill blind to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. And, of course, the mountains of Ephraim is where Joshua was going to be as well. He's of that tribe. And so we find this condition that it's going to last for a generation after Joshua because the people saw the working of God. And it's going to be later than that, after the whole, another generation passes, that we're going to have problems. They're going to go right into Canaanite worship and deny what their fathers claimed. We're going to serve the Lord and the Lord only, and it's the next generation, not the ones that said it, but the children, that next generation that didn't keep that. And the responsibility for that falls upon a lot of, it falls upon the elders, it falls upon the priests, the Levites, it falls upon parents, it, uh, the responsibility falls upon all of them. Why didn't it get transferred down the road? Why 
through time did we not do that. Uh, remember, they weren't supposed to even speak the name of Canaanite gods. Don't even use, don't even know their names. Don't even be able to identify them. You should have that kind of, maintain that kind of purity um, that you shouldn't even have access to know them, know about them even. Just know that they're wicked. You don't have to investigate them, explore them. Um, know that they're wicked, and, and yeah, I am kind of an isolationist in my way I raise my kids. You don't need to know what garbage that's out there. Now, it's one of the things about homeschoolers. All oh, your kids are all... No, they are innocent. They are being kept from knowing the gods of the Canaanites. They are being kept from being exposed to all that nonsense. You might say, how are they getting exposed to the public schools? Well, now it's by teachers as well, but um, from other students, frankly, and what they're bringing into the, into the schoolyard. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent that um, the names of those evil gods don't need to be named, let alone investigated and explored and, and uh, discovered. I don't need to investigate evil to know it's evil. I don't need to experience it to know it's wrong. Uh, I just don't need to go there. Um, we can, it, the Bible says that whatever is excellent, true, good, trustworthy, above reproach, these are the things we're supposed to meditate on. Um, and there's so much depth and breadth there, um, you, shouldn't have you shouldn't have time or inclination to investigate the wickedness of this world. Um, you need to explore and discover the depths of the holiness of God. Okay, and then remember, in Joshua's last words, he says, remember the covenant. And that covenant was important. Even a wrong, a bad covenant, you shouldn't have done. It's still important to keep it. And it's important you keep this good covenant that we have with the Lord. Keep these covenants. And uh, the people says, we will. And he says, well, you can't because God's so holy and you're not. But keep trying. And for a generation, all the days of Joshua, a generation following, they did. And uh, so don't tell me you can't. Uh, because if a generation and another generation can, any generation can. Okay? And it might seem like when we get in the book of Judges, well, if I'm not of the right generation, I'm not going to be able to serve the Lord. Well, that's not true. You can and must. This is what God requires of us. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for this opportunity to gather your name, for the, a study uh, overview of Joshua's ministry and life. And Lord, we thank you for his faithfulness to his covenants with his people, with you, and even with his enemies. And Lord, uh, pray that we might have that level of responsibility and that we might have that uh, level of honor to keep our word before men, with each other, within our family, and that we might keep our word uh, before you to serve you all our days. For you are our Lord, our Master, our King, as well as our Savior and friend. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be faithful in our days and live with the mistakes we make, recognize them, and serve on. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.